another pot of coffee is brewing. My third cup is almost finished, so that means it's time for Not Before Coffee. I'm your host, Ray, self-confessed bookworm, film addict, hermit, and long-term depression sufferer. This week, I'm taking a little bit of a walk down memory lane as I talk about some of the things that I did to keep myself from communicating with the walls in my flat during the pandemic. However, this isn't a woe is me, I couldn't do anything tale. It's been weird, quiet and sometimes depressing, but it's also something that many others have been going through. So I know, figuratively, I'm not alone. On a random note, before we get to all that though, you'll find that there are a few of these, no excuses, my brain just happens to work that way. Anyone else have recurring dreams? I've been dreaming about a snake for months. I wake up and I can recall the dream exactly, every single detail. I'm talking with faceless people about a bus driver who is having an affair, which, unless you know my family history, is seriously unusual. And I'm in a field, in a clawfoot bathtub, when I see a snake. This is one of those yellow and white snakes, kind of like the Slave for You era Britney Spears thing. Anyway, I start trying to warn these faceless people about the snake, but it happens to ignore them completely and head straight for me, fully dressed in the clawfoot tub. Anyhow, it As it tangles around my feet in the bath, I wake up. I find every single time I have this dream, my blankets are tangled around me as though I've been fighting them. And sometimes I actually go to sleep without the blankets on, so the fact that they're tangled around me is really weird. But what the heck is this all about? A snake? I mean, it's one of my biggest fears. Not quite Indiana Jones type fear, but I really don't like snakes. However, this morning when I woke up, I looked up the dream just out of curiosity. Don't hold much stock in that kind of stuff, but I mean, sometimes it has to be right, doesn't it? Apparently, dreaming about a snake means something significant is going to happen. Significant? Really? Is that all they can come up with? Does anyone else have dreams like this? Anyone else actually understand how the subconscious, the id and everything else works? I'm at a complete loss and I really would like to understand why I keep on having the same dream. Anyway, back to the regularly scheduled randomness instead of that. Yes, I've already mentioned I'm going to be talking about lockdown and how I managed to get through it without being admitted to an asylum. See previous dream for why perhaps it might have happened. Anyway, not many hospitals are actually accepting patients right now. However, it could have been a concern. You may not know. In fact, you probably don't, but I live alone. So that means that for the duration of lockdown, which thanks to being diagnosed with diabetes a few years ago, happened for me around the beginning, well, second or third week of March, I've been alone, apart from my decidedly spoiled, hugely overindulged and incredibly attention-seeking cat, Darcy. 
She's gorgeous. Don't get me wrong, I love her to bits. But when she throws up on my carpet instead of on the wooden floor, I have to go and take a few deep breaths somewhere before I clean it up. I wish I had a machine to do it. So, how have I coped? You may possibly be asking. For the first few weeks, it was relatively easy. The office I work in was still running at full capacity, even though most people had already started to work from home. I was still working full time. And to be honest, I'm used to having a few weeks here and there when I don't see people except for those I work with. In fact, working from home has been a godsend. As a writer, yes, I actually get paid to put words on paper, though I write about cars, not that I don't love them anyway, I get a lot more done. There are no phone distractions, no radio playing the same songs over and over and over. I swear if I hear that song from A Star Is Born by Lady Gaga and Bradley Cooper one more time, I might go legitimately nuts on something that I can't afford to break. And there are no colleagues asking me questions they can find the answers to online. At the office, they've started to call me Wikipedia because apparently I have information stuck in my head that can be useful at weird moments in time. I'm not sure if it's an insult or a compliment, but I'm going to take it as a compliment because why wouldn't I? Over the first few weeks of working from home, I wrote a ton of articles. I helped with marketing emails and managed to get caught up on tasks that I'd started to doubt I'd ever get finished. You know the ones... You get given them at the beginning of the year. They are, if you get time, can you have a look at this? Maybe for some people it's archiving or filing. For me, it's optimising an article that was written three years ago that could do with a bit of an update. I actually managed to get these done. Well, most of them. My pile had grown and grown as my manager went on maternity leave and other things happened around the office. So my responsibilities changed somewhat and the tiny little pile of, can you get these done, kind of got stuck at the bottom underneath other stuff that came in that was more timely, more urgent. And for a while, it actually got forgotten. That's a really bad thing for me to admit because I don't like it. However, that pile, which was probably about six inches tall, is now maybe two and a half inches. So I am quite happy that having worked from home for the last five and a half months, I'm finally getting through the to-do list I've had for nearly two years. Anyhow, I started to feel the isolation at around week five. Bearing in mind, as I record this, it's now five and a half months since isolation started. Until lockdown began, every Sunday I spent with a close friend who is also an ex-colleague. We'd go out for coffee, we'd have a chat, and sometimes we'd go shopping, either grocery or fun stuff like the garden centre. Yes, I like garden centres. Sue me. No, please don't sue me. And then after we'd done all that, we'd had our catch up, we'd have a hug and then we'd part ways. Sure, now we have our coffee a different way. Every Sunday morning, we toast each other with homemade coffee, have a bit of a chat, talk about our week, which 
for the first few months, obviously, as with everybody else, wasn't massively exciting because we were all stuck indoors and not seeing anyone. And then we sign off with a blown kiss and a promise to chat again the following week. As nice as this is, and it's really great to still have catch-ups, it's not the same as meeting in person. There's still something that seems distant and feels odd. Even stranger for me, my family, one that I rarely see in normal situations, normally they're reserved for birthdays, Christmas, Easter and so on, we started to get together on a Sunday afternoon to play games. We never really take the opportunity to catch up and talk about how our weeks have been, how we're feeling or anything else. It's all about trivia or games like Articulate. On several occasions when I was in charge of the trivia questions, I got told that I needed to make them easier because apparently hardly anyone knew who Ada Lovelace was or that her father was Lord Byron. I did start to wonder if my general knowledge is different to theirs or just I happen to play different games. But it doesn't matter. The games went on. We started doing them differently, gave them themes. One of my nephews is absolutely obsessed with only asking questions about Star Wars. I have no idea about Star Wars. Please, I'm going to duck my head right now and wait for it. But I haven't seen anything further than the first three. And the last time I saw the third one was, well... Return of the Jedi, and that was when it was actually in the cinema originally. The minute lockdown started to ease a little and the bubble process was introduced, game day with the family ceased, even though I wasn't, and I'm still not, part of a bubble. But that's a story for a whole other time because, oh, good grief, that could go on forever. Cabin fever had definitely started to kick in. Unlike a large number of colleagues and many friends, I am one of the lucky people who has been working all the way through the pandemic. And I mean legitimately lucky. I've spoken with a few friends who've been on furlough since the end of March. They are climbing the walls and they are obviously quite concerned that they might not actually have a job to go back to come the end of September. And I wouldn't want to be them for anything. I've been doing the usual 8.30 to 5 or later every weekday, making sure that our marketing is sent out, analytic reports are still done and articles are being uploaded to our website. I've been busy, which is good. In fact, when asked why I shouldn't be put on furlough, my justification was I don't want to start talking to the walls. If I'm not busy, that will happen. But when the day is over, obviously, when I've stopped talking with my colleagues and I've stopped being busy, that's when the quiet starts to get to me. It was when the real isolation started to kick in that I began a very long walk down memory lane, back to a time when things were so much easier. And for me, as a 1980s child, that was the 1980s when... It sounds really strange, but there were very, very few or there were less cars on the road. Kids played outside and it actually reflected very much what we have been experiencing. I noticed one afternoon, one Sunday afternoon, I was sitting on my balcony and all I could hear was the kick of a football and 
a very infrequent car. And it reminded me of my childhood. We used to be able to play in the road. Shouldn't probably admit that, but we did. We used to play in the road. We'd play football. We'd play chase. We'd cycle along the road with no worry that we were going to get run over by a car, speeding down it too fast. And most houses were, if they had any vehicle at all, one cower households. Anyway, let's back to TV and VD and VD and DVDs. Good grief. Um, not rating this adult. DVDs. <laughs> I started to pick through my DVD collection. I watched I wanted to watch films, not analyze them, just pass the time. The moment work finishes, I put dinner in the oven, switch on the TV, grab a book. Yes. I have to do more than one thing at once and either put on a DVD or flick through Disney Plus, Netflix and Amazon. And yes, I have all three. I don't have a live TV broadcast in my flat. We don't have a TV aerial and I got rid of everything else because I didn't actually. I In fact, I actually did a study and realised I hadn't switched on my television to watch anything on live broadcast in about a year, it was just not worth it. So I have my streaming services and they suit me down to the ground, especially backed up by my DVD collection. So in the first few weeks, oh God, this sounds so bad. In the first few weeks, I watched the most of, if not all of, John Hughes' back catalogue, including 16 Candles, Pretty in Pink, Weird Science, Breakfast Club. And yes, I am fully aware that if you look at them now, they are problematic, especially in the era of Me Too. And certain character portrayals could be considered problematic. And that's a very, very loose term, but I don't want to get into political discussion because that's not what this is about. Um, I needed the comfort of familiarity. And for me, that's what these films offered. Once I'd worked my way through all of these, including Home Alone, uh, which, to be fair, didn't take very long, as most of them were around an hour and 35 minutes in total. Um, I moved on to TV. If I'm being completely honest, back in the 80s when I was a tween and teen, TV wasn't so great as it is now. They didn't make as many programs and broadcast as many, especially in the UK, that were targeted towards teenagers we didn't have your Dawson's Creek and your Buffy and your Charmed and your Roswell and Veronica Mars and all the other shows that started popping up in the late 90s and early 2000s we had the wonder that was MacGyver we had Streethawk we had Airwolf the A-Team and Magnum P.I. And then in 1990, Beverly Hills 90210, yes, the original with Dylan and Brenda and Kelly started to air in the UK. And then that was followed by Melrose Place. Having grown up in the 80s, of course, American soaps were hugely popular. I think Dallas aired every Wednesday night and one of the biggest mysteries of my youth was who shot JR. They even had... Um, it on the news which was when you think about it these days that was weird that was incredible it was it had such an impact on society as it was then it was on the national news 
J.R. Ewing was shot like he was a real person. He wasn't. He isn't. Okay, Larry Hagman was, but he, as a character, was not real. But it had such an impact. People wanted to know who it was. It was the end of the season. And we knew we had a while to wait to find out who was the guilty party. Everybody knows, but if you haven't actually done the research or you never watched it, I'm not telling. And obviously, none of those shows really spoke to me. And to be fair, none of them were actually available on any of the streaming services. Though I think there is a remake or a reboot of Dynasty available. I may have watched a few episodes at one point, but it's one of those that you have to get into and really care about. And I gave up. Anyway, when I started to look through the TV programs that were available, I decided on Leverage. I love the characters, love the storyline, really enjoy the fact that not one single character is more important than any of the others. They all have their individual problems, characters that they relate to better. They have their own backgrounds. They have their own deep backstories, their motivations. And being completely honest, I will watch anything that stars Christian Kane because he was one of the best things for me in season one of Angel and actually pretty much anything else I've watched with him in, um, including, let's see, including Almost Paradise and The Librarians, which to be fair was a mm, an average show at best. There are 77 episodes in Leverage and I watched all of them, which is around 55 hours in just over two weeks. That's about four hours a day but then I'm not taking into account the time over the weekend where I would literally just sit down on a Saturday, press play and continue watching until it was time to go to bed. And that makes me sound incredibly lazy, but when you've got nowhere to go and nothing to do, sitting down and watching a TV show for the whole day is hardly something that no one else is doing. So... The exploits of Parker Hardison, Sophie and Elliot, and Nate, sorry, nearly forgot him, they never cease to amuse me. Some of the episodes are admittedly a little bit more serious than others, covering subjects such as child kidnap and smuggling, but there are also light-hearted moments in each, including the episodes where Parker has childlike glee over Father Christmas and Christmas in general, and she's really, though she has a very, very serious undertone to her she is almost like the comic relief and that's not in a bad way I'm not sure I know um, recently they announced that Amazon has purchased the rights along with another company to make a to do a reboot with the original characters barring Timothy Hutton due to situations outside of everything that I'm going to talk about and they're also casting Noah Wiley, who seems to be a Dean Devlin favourite, as he was in the Librarian series and also the Librarian's films that he worked on. And I'm very interested to see how they're going to bring it back nearly nine years later and either completely gloss over what happened at the end of the final episode or start again and explain why Sophie is back and Nate isn't. 
In the scheme of things, two weeks isn't a long time, especially when you consider it's been five and a half months. And when you think about how quickly it goes if you're on holiday, it is a single blip. Once I was finished with Leverage, after those two weeks, I needed to find something else to watch. I was definitely still back on that nostalgia kick. And I was absolutely stuck as to what to watch. So I flicked through every single channel. And finally, thanks to the launch of Disney+, Plus, I realized that I needed to go back a little bit. Just over 17 years ago, I suffered a complete mental break. And here's total honesty mixed in with why I picked the programs I did. Um, I was off work for 10 months. Insomnia was my very best friend. And I spent time with multiple therapists, a counsellor, took so many different medications, I've lost count. And finally settled on a treatment that worked and I was able to return to work. Though sometimes I still have, as everybody does, a few blips. Anyway, back to TV, because I think mental health is a subject that deserves far more attention than I can give it right now. I started watching Disney Toons. It was, if anybody remembers, back in the, I suppose, early noughties, it was on 24 hours a day. It was one of three channels that Sky launched as part of their Disney package. Disney Toons, Disney Movies, and the Disney Channel. Everything else finished. I didn't really want to watch anything that was serious. Of course, we had the news channels that aired 24 hours a day, and there were a few sports channels and things like that, but none of that was light enough or entertaining enough to occupy my mind when I couldn't sleep. So Disney Toons it was. I watched Gargoyles, I watched DuckTales, Chippendale, so many different programs that aired all the way through the night. And so what else would I turn to when I gained access to Disney's back catalogue? I picked Gargoyles, the story of Gruff Goliath and his fellow gargoyles, including the cute little Hudson, who I really loved, living in modern-day New York. Well, modern day for the 90s anyway. I have to be honest, unlike Leverage, I haven't devoured gargoyles, as I thought I would. I'm not sure what it is, because my fondness for the characters hasn't faded but a couple of episodes is all I want to watch before I go searching for something else. The funny thing is that there is so much new stuff out there. Netflix has been busy, Disney Plus has been producing new content, so's Amazon, but I don't want to watch it. Um, I've watched maybe one episode of Warrior Nun. I know that I've watched one and a half maybe of Space Force. Teenage Bounty Hunters started last week and I've watched one episode and about 10 minutes of the second. Snowpiercer is another that's on my radar and though I've heard really good things about it and I know it's already been renewed for a second series, I like the film too much to want any disappointment. Then, of course, we have the films, The Old Guard, Extraction, 
um, the kissing booth and everything else. Old Garden Extraction. I love action movies. They're both on my continue watching list as I've managed maybe 50 minutes of each, if that. For some reason, they're just not catching my mood when I sit down to watch them. I'm not going to say that any of these programs or films are bad. In fact, I've heard good things about almost all of them. They're probably really good, well-written, entertaining, and if I were able to get into them and focus for more than a little bit on something that requires concentration, then I'd probably devour them in a single sitting. Unfortunately, right now I can't get into anything that needs me to pay attention. I want easy viewing, and just like easy listening, that's the familiar Familiar equals comfort, and who doesn't like a little bit of comfort when they're seeking distraction? As well as familiar TV shows, as I've already mentioned, I started watching a load of other films that sort of brought about that easy time when I didn't have to do anything. I had no responsibilities and things were so much simpler. So we're talking films like Labyrinth and The Princess Bride, or stuff like Clueless and While You Were Sleeping, you know, Happy Ever Afters, very, very young Paul Rudd, um, really, really cute Peter Gallagher. And then I started to watch the films that brought on the tears. I have a thing about crying. I think it's healthy. I think it's cathartic. And sometimes you just need to find something that's going to make you sob your heart out. So I turned to the Disney Weepies. And for those, read Up, Moana, and Big Hero 6. Not saying they're the only ones. In fact, there are probably loads more. And I know that Inside Out had me crying too. I'm not going to explain myself. So what if I sob like a baby when I watch the first 10 minutes of Up? So what if the moving scene between Moana and her grandmother after her grandmother's just passed away actually has me physically holding myself so I don't cry too much? Before lockdown, I went and saw Onward at the cinema. God, I miss the cinema so much. I love the actual smell of it. And I know it's disgusting because the floors are all sticky and the seats are a little bit uncomfortable and everything else. But I miss it. But I went and saw Onward and I'm so relieved I went on my own because the loss of the pa- a loss of a parent is something I identify with. And Onward as a film spoke to me. I cried from almost the minute the film started until the moment it finished. Even though I still had a smile on my face at certain moments, the relationship between the characters was beautiful and I could feel the wet, the emotions that they felt. I miss my dad as well and I lost him 30, oh my God, 35 years ago this year. And that's a long time to grieve for somebody. But if anybody says you get over it, you don't. The pain fades, but you still miss the person you've lost. I cried for most of the film and I came out of the cinema blinking against the light because it was still midday and I had puffy red eyes. I'm so glad I don't wear makeup very often because I'd have probably looked like a a clown from a horror movie or something. I would definitely recommend you went and saw it if you get the chance. It's a beautiful and really underrated film. I think that it got short shrift if only because it was released so soon before everything went incredibly wrong. And by that, I'm sure you know what I mean. 
As I record this, we're almost at the end of August. So if you listen to this, it will actually be September. A lot has changed. Lockdown has eased. The R number is apparently lower, though this news seems to be changing almost on an hourly basis. And normal life as we know it is never going to come back. I know that people say, oh, things will change. It will do this, that and the other. But being honest, seeing how everything has had to adapt, life as we knew it before all of this is very unlikely, I'm sorry, to be how it was. There are still going to be things that you need to adapt to. Masks are probably going to still be a thing for another few years. And the idea of um, people who are really vulnerable being able to do everything they did before is probably as far out there as me willing the lottery when I don't actually do it. Just a week ago, I actually went out and spent the entire day away from my flat for the first time since March. I came home feeling really happy that I had seen people, but absolutely shattered. It was also really weird. Before lockdown, my mum was going through combination chemotherapy for lymphoma. She's had it for about 12 years and this is her second cycle, the first with a combination therapy. And it what it made her feel quite ill. It's had some it's had quite a few ser- relatively serious after effects. However, this meant that she, like me and several others, were told to shield for a minimum of three months which then increased as the numbers spiked while we were on lockdown she got the all clear i've never been so relieved and we really all of us were really happy understandably so i mean if somebody says to you i've got cancer and then six months later the treatment that has been making them chronically sick and feel absolutely awful and everything else that goes with it suddenly says to you I've actually now got the all clear are you gonna say oh okay our celebration was held over zoom which I mean it was a celebration but at the same time there was no clinking of glasses there was no hugging there was no well everybody cried but there was nothing there was none of that connection because we couldn't go near each other and we certainly couldn't go near my mum At the end of August, or the beginning of August, sorry, her lockdown ended, as did mine. Well, at least the restrictions have been lifted with the sort of warning that if things change, anybody who is vulnerable will be back 100% shielding again. It was great to see her, but it was also weird knowing that I couldn't hug her, touch her, or anything else. Having said that, we spent the day together, drank stacks of coffee, and I'm talking probably about seven cups each. Yes, coffee is a big part of my life. Have you seen the name of my podcast? And I bought a brand new Hoover. She bought a new phone. And then we started looking for neck curtains. So it was a really exciting day, as you can tell. But at the same time, when it came to the end of the day and we were saying goodbye I couldn't hug her I certainly couldn't kiss her even though I've been in isolation myself the possibility that one of us had touched something or been somewhere maybe or been around someone else that had been in contact with someone was too high for us to take that risk and I felt even though I'd been with her it was still 
weird and it was still a bit empty. I'm not, I know that I'm not alone in feeling this way. Isolation isn't only about being told to stay at home, it's also about feeling alone. And I've been feeling alone for five and a half months, but it's now becoming very familiar. It's not something that I'm just acclimatizing to. talk about something a little bit lighter (laughs) keeping busy has been incredibly important and it's not only important for me it's important for everyone so another thing as a bookworm that I have been doing and how I've been passing my time is reading I have read new authors I've read old ones I've picked up books I haven't thought about for 20 years and those are the books that have that beautiful smell like an intoxicating combination of musk dust and vanilla I would list all the books I've read and though 42 isn't an immense amount it's pretty good for someone who's been working full-time and obviously it's a fantastic number if you're a fan of Douglas Adams like I am however right now I'm going to talk about the book I've just finished a class act by a new author January James. I didn't realise until I read her bio that she's actually someone who lives pretty local to me. So in a few weeks, I am going to try and persuade her to come and talk to me, um, ask her about how she came up with the story, her characters and what made her go into writing, especially as according to her bio, she worked previously in the city. Though when you read the book, you'll actually be able to see that she has experience in that particular world. I'm going to start with the blurb though, as I feel this doesn't do the book justice, but I do think that it will give you some idea of something to do with the story. Lottie Matheson has everything going for her, wealth and privilege, single-minded ambition and a brand new graduate job in the thick of London's thrilling startup scene. But Lottie Matheson isn't who she seems. Hiding behind a false identity to distance herself from a troubled background, Lottie becomes embroiled in an affair with her brilliant and charismatic but famously attached CEO Marcus Armstrong. But as their relationship intensifies, their colleagues become suspicious and before long the secrets are out. All of them. With everything broken, her heart, her reputation, her spirit, will Lottie ever find the strength to start start again? This book is not what it seems when you read the blurb. Initially, Lottie comes across as very fake, but you later discover it's because she has been hiding who she really is and her true character when it comes out is so genuine and so nice that you understand why she had to put on some kind of facade to fit in with the brutal, harsh, overindulged arrogance that is associated that it's not associated it is her colleagues who've had this incredibly exclusive upbringing who've been who are used to being given everything and hate the fact that her hard work actually gets her somewhere anyway she her troubled background is far more than just troubled her mother is brutal and for for Lottie the story obviously at the beginning 
Lottie, you see her in this exclusive world. She's talking about designer clothing that she's managed to source from various places. She talks about her flat. She talks about her job. And then somebody from her past shows up and tells her that her mother is dying. My immediate instinct when I read that was, I've been here, though obviously I've got a better relationship with my mother than she has. And would I say no, I wouldn't go and see her? Obviously, I wouldn't say no, because my relationship with my mum is, though complicated, nowhere near as complicated as hers. However, when you become aware of what her relationship with her mother really is, you think, well, maybe I wouldn't go and see her. So she's done the right thing for her mental health, and that I cannot argue with. Obviously, a dying parent is a sensitive subject, but everybody reacts differently, and it does depend on the relationship you have with them and how things were left when you left. Lottie, it wasn't left in a good situation, and she's not going to jump right in and go, I forgive you, mummy, when her mum was horrible to her. And I'm not talking just horrible, I'm talking brutal. Anyway, I have to admit that initially, and here's me being honest again, I was really nervous about reading this book. I've communicated with the author over Instagram and it was a request, oh, would you like to read this and review it? And my immediate thought was, what if I don't like it? I am nothing if not honest when it comes to reviews because I think that you need to, you deserve to know the truth. However, I also hate hurting people's feelings. So my fear was I was going to open this book. I was going to absolutely hate it and not know what to say. I have been in this situation before and I took a step back and thought, would I want somebody to be so brutally honest with me? Can I say anything nice? When I realized I couldn't say anything nice, I just took multiple steps back and that was it because I felt uncomfortable and it was a situation I didn't need to be in. However, this book was totally different. The more I read of it, the more I became invested in these characters, especially Lottie. I started to understand why she'd pushed her old life aside, why she was trying to hide who she was, because it didn't fit with her new life. But not only did it not fit with her new life, it also didn't actually fit with who she wanted to be what she'd worked hard to become so the more I found out about her the more I admired who she was how hard she'd worked and everything that she'd actually overcome to get where she was she initially came across as someone who was desperate for approval but then when the going got tough and her entire life was decimated by one single revelation from a jealous colleague and a man who was manipulating the situation because he wanted to take over Marcus's company, she came out of it strong, independent and very determined. Okay, so like anybody else, she had her momentary breakdown, but then seriously, if your life has been torn apart, I don't think you'd, you would stand up and go, oh, everything's just fine if you didn't care about it. She worked hard to get what she had and to see it all taken away in the way it was, was heartbreaking. She is virtually destroyed when things come to a head, but when she comes out the other side, she is much stronger and I loved that after everything that happened, 
she pushed aside the self-pity and did get back on her feet. Granted, she had the support of a really good friend and I think that is something that came across. She builds loyalty in people. People admire her. They like her gumption and there's a lovely word from the holiday there for you. She is someone who just won't get punched down and stay down. So she really didn't deserve the treatment she got and the book gives a rather horrifying insight into the way that the press will often vilify the one person who's unable to defend themselves in certain situations. So when her affair with Marcus is exposed, because he is a celebrity and his business is worth millions, she is dragged through it like she is the villain when in actuality she is the victim he's the one who was involved with someone she felt guilty for it but she was unable to resist partially I don't know if it's because he was her boss and he was imposing and arrogant and very very strong-willed but also because there was that I love him and he says he loves me anyway not going to go into the ins and outs of is it peer pressure is it him using his position because that's not what this is about this is about Lottie overcoming everything when it came down to it she wasn't alone she has a really good friend in Rhea who is an ex-colleague and there is obviously something about her that it inspires this loyalty because she gathers people around her that end up being really good for her and she finds her own way. She finally discovers what her passion is. And she pushes to get things done. So she has the help of Miles, who is a computer geek, who is admits he's in love with her, but more in love with her passion for this project that she has. And she starts to build a team. She gets support. She gets backing. And she even rekindles her friendship with someone who is he comes across as incredibly naive and I'm not sure if that's because he's younger than her or because of the way he was brought up that's never made clear I read this book in just a little over two hours in one single sitting and though the ending wasn't a surprise at all the fact that Lottie wasn't just going to roll over and accept everything when Marcus came to tell her that everything was done and he was he he st he still supported her it made me smile because she just wasn't going to say oh yeah uh, whatever I'm going to write all this off and nothing ever happened I like that so if you like me enjoy a book that has a strong female lead character who makes her own decisions after being dragged through the mud a male character who is enigmatic and ends up being far more human than he initially appears and of course, a few glimpses of an adorable computer nerd, then I'd recommend A Class Act by January James. I'll post the link to the book on Amazon UK in the episode notes if you want to go and buy it for yourself. So that's about it for this week. I hope you enjoyed listening to my random thoughts and maybe got to know a little bit more about who I am. I'm pretty active over on social media, so if you want to follow me to find out what I've been up to between recordings, or just want to come over and say hi, I promise I don't bite, you can find me at need underscore three underscore mugs on Twitter, and not before coffee podcast on Facebook. I post in both locations regularly about books, I've been reading, episode planning, and loads of other podcast related stuff as well as general news. 
Well, my coffee has been completely finished and I need another one, so I'm gonna go and put the kettle on. Until next time, farewell.